O God of glory, shine on us with the light of your presence. Make us attentive to your word as a lamp in the darkness. And make our darkness into your light by your word this morning. Amen. I want you to be seated. This Sunday, it marks the end of the season of Epiphany and the beginning of the season of Lent with Ash Wednesday this coming week. On this Sunday, I've always found it comforting that we prepare for the season of Lent with these stories, particularly with the story of Moses' encounter with God and then Jesus' transfiguration on the mountaintop with Peter, James, and John witnessing his conversation with Moses and Elijah. I find it comforting in a disturbing and uncomfortable sort of way. Allow me to explain. On one level, our initial reaction is to try to explain away these experiences. But that just won't do. do. They were such visceral experiences, at least in the case of Jesus' transfiguration, that it captured the imagination of the early Christian community. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the story. And as we heard this morning, it was used by Peter to clear up the authority that he had in the community as he speaks about being an eyewitness to Jesus' majesty. My comfort derives from how uncomfortable these texts make me. Because they are strange texts. They speak about a strange God who makes strange appearances to people who don't know quite what to do in response. But it is God who shows up and changes things, changes people, transforms, shows God's glory, and sets in motion actions that will change the human landscape. This is God playing on the playground of human history, entering, changing, molding, sending. Strange, disturbing, but God. But that's what I find comfortable in these texts, It's not up to anybody but God in these texts. Many of you by now will have heard the news coming out of the Larsh community. You will have read about the moral failures of Jean Vanier, a beloved Christian leader who, when he was alive, was considered by many to be a living saint, and he died this past year. How do we square his incredible and life-giving work, especially among those with disabilities and his sexually predatory moral failures? Moses was a murderer. Peter was a liar. He was a denier of Jesus. He was prone to violent confrontations with Roman soldiers. And yet God shows up and reveals his glory to them. Now I say this not to make light of Vanier's sins, but to simply say that God reveals himself to the broken. 
Thank God. God uses the broken. God employs failures in spite of themselves. We are each of us divided against ourselves by sin. And yet each of us, we can shine like shining from shook foil, as Gerard Manley Hopkins says in his wonderful poem, God's Grandeur. So I have comfort in these texts this morning because in these texts we meet failures, broken human beings to whom God reveals God's glory and changes them in spite of themselves, in spite of their brokenness and their failures and uses them. The cloud of God's glory envelops all of them and changes them forever. And I find comfort too in these readings because these are not stories to be explained, to be decoded and then codified, but stories to be experienced and stories which in the end we can't explain but rather explain us. The great preacher Barbara Brown Taylor says this, what if the point is not to decipher the cloud but to enter into it? What if the whole Bible is less a book of certainties than it is a book of encounters? in which a staggering long parade of people run into God, each other, life, and are never the same again. I mean, what don't people run into in the Bible? Not just terrifying clouds and hair-raising voices, but also crazy relatives, persistent infertility, armed enemies, deep depression, along with life-saving strangers, miraculous children, food in the wilderness, and knee-wobbling love. The scriptures tell the stories, not of moral and religious certainties, but stories of encounter, of running into God, running into each other, running into life. It's a story which continues throughout the millennia and even this morning. I'm not here to explain away the text this morning but to stand before a text full of dazzling light, light that transforms, that redeems and heals, a text that we can't fully explain or consume, a text that is simply there offering disturbing consolation, a text before which we live out our faith in awe and in praise. That's why I find it comforting to end Epiphany and to begin Lent in this way. It's not up to me. It's not up to my certainties. It's not up to my doubts. It's not up to my wins. It's not up to my losses. It's not up to my failures. It's up to God. It is the transforming power of God's glory that propels you, that propels me. Ever since I read Marilyn Robinson's wonderful Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Gilead, a number of years ago, I can't go through a transfiguration without thinking about her main protagonist, the preacher John Amos. 
who says this in a sermon. It has seemed to me sometimes as though the Lord breathes on this poor gray ember of creation and it turns to radiance for a moment or a year or the span of a life. Wherever you turn your eyes, the world can shine like transfiguration. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that we will have those mountaintop experiences like Moses or Peter, James, and John. It doesn't necessarily mean that we will float on mystical clouds or hear audible voices. But what it does mean is that there's potential all around us in the most ordinary of places for transformation. It means that grace comes to us in the mundane, in the broken, even in our failures. Grace comes in the mundane, perhaps in bread, in a word, in water, in wine, in a stranger, in a friend, in rest, in play, in work, at the turn of the eye. God can surprise us with the brilliance of his glory and light us afire with the clarity of his transfiguring light. The promise is that the glory of God transforms our world, transforms you and me from the inside out. But we have to be careful not to make the mistake that Peter makes on the mountaintop. He wants to solidify the experience. He wants to stay up on top of the mountain, codify the whole thing in three shrines and three monuments. He wants to be really religious. He wants to be very holy. But Jesus puts his hand on him and says, get up. Don't be afraid. We're going down the mountain. There's work to do. There's work to do as our Lord sets his face to Jerusalem as he moves towards the exodus of his own death. Now, we can't know ahead of time what mountains and valleys lie ahead of us. We can't predict how God will speak to us and in what way Jesus will be made real to us. But you can trust in this, whether it's on the brightest mountain or in the darkest valley. Jesus abides with you. So like shook foil, we can shine. Hopkins finishes his wonderful poem with this. And for all this, Nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning, at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. This world Indeed, you and I are charged with the grandeur and glory of the living God. Thanks be to God. Amen.